0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna,
1: and me, Frederick.
0: This week, I speak with Claudia Diaz from University of Leuven and the Project NIM about mix-nets, the history of privacy technology, and how there may be some opportunities for new privacy tech to emerge in this post-pandemic world. But before we start in, I want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Aztec. Aztec is the company behind a super-fast privacy network on Ethereum. This has been live on Mainnet since January. They're also the team behind Plonk, the new standard in universal snarks. In fact, you may recall, we actually did an episode on Plonk just a few months ago. So Aztec makes private transactions easy for developers via its privacy SDK. This removes the complexities of ZK proofs and note management, letting you focus on building your dApp. With Aztec Network, you can build custom private assets as well as shields for ERC-20s. The team is now developing a ZKZK rollup, or as they've called it, a ZK squared rollup. It's an upgrade for their network, and it adds ID privacy and improves throughput. So Aztec invites you to integrate privacy into your DAP already through the SDK and docs. They're all available at Aztecprotocol.com. You can also email hello at Aztecprotocol.com for API keys. This would give you immediate free private mainnet transactions. You can also follow Aztec on Twitter or join their Telegram channels for updates about the project. I've added all the links in the show notes. So thank you again, Aztec, for supporting the show. And now here's my conversation with Claudia Diaz. So today I'm sitting with Claudia Diaz, who's a professor at University of Leuven and the chief scientist at NIM Technologies. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about what NIM is. We're going to cover mixnets, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about the importance of privacy thinking and privacy technology, especially in the light of this kind of current need for things like contact tracing or other tracking techniques during the pandemic that we're currently living through. So yeah, welcome to the show, Claudia. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So let's find out a little bit about you and your work. What... You know what's what's your background? What are you doing now? You sort of I, you have two roles, so maybe you can explain a little bit about how that came to be.
1: Yeah, so uh, my, I have an academic background. Uh, my degree—I'm an engineer. My degree is in um, telecom engineering. I did that uh, degree in, in in Spain, in the University of Vigo, and then I I moved to Leuven to to start my research uh, already in year 2000, and my topic was actually anonymity in uh, in digital systems. So that was year 2000. At the time, uh, privacy was not so much uh, on the table as it is today. Uh, it was before Facebook and Google was only started, actually. Mm. Um, so, yeah, things have changed a lot. Uh, I have seen, uh, therefore, how, you know, online systems have evolved and how privacy has not particularly gotten better, I would say, in, uh, in um, the systems that we have today. So my, my topic is mainly trying to design technologies that support privacy, that provide people the ability to take advantage of modern technologies, to be able to talk to others, to access information, to do all kinds of nice things without necessarily having to give up all the information um, in a way that can be exploited by others.
0: And what about, how did you get involved with NIM? What is NIM? Maybe you say what that is, because we've never had anyone from that project on the show.
1: So NIM Technologies is a, is a startup that um, has been uh, working for a bit more than a year, and the goal of NIM is to develop a system that supports privacy for applications. So it's actually we are actually building a privacy infrastructure that other applications can can use in order to offer privacy to their users so the the story here is that, so, as i said i start i 've been working for a long time in in privacy research and specifically in anonymous communication systems and privacy technologies and About five years ago, we started a project, a European project called Panoramics and Panoramics aimed at um, advancing research in mixed networks um, by taking up work that had been done already in the last two decades that had not been advancing. So much since, um, about 2005, because once we had, once Tor became like a a deployed system, a lot of the research efforts went into uh, analyzing Tor and improving Tor and attacking Tor and building countermeasures for Tor. And therefore, MixNets, which is an alternative uh, design, uh, kind of uh, fell a little bit out of attention. But the issue with Tor is that, I mean, I can talk about that later, but the issue with Tor is that it's very good for web browsing, but it makes some sacrifices. And in particular, because it doesn't introduce any latency, it is not resistant towards very powerful adversaries. We can see both ends of the connection. While mixed networks, they offer that kind of resistance at the cost of higher latency. The Snowden revelations of 2011 actually led uh, many to realize the pervasiveness of traffic analysis by intelligence agencies and the realization that maybe TOR wasn't enough to protect communications towards uh, such a strong adversary. So that's a little bit what led to the proposal of this European project. The project was accepted. It was coordinated by Águilos Kiayas from the University of Edinburgh. And we were a team of about eight or nine groups uh, working in there. So, I mean, we did really nice work in that project. Uh, the outcome was um, prototypes for Mixnets, well, a lot of research papers with uh, new designs, new features, new attacks, but also uh, deployed systems for different applications. Some Mixnets were for voting and some Mixnets were for messaging. So when we were uh, working on this project in the last year, European projects, they ask you to, to come up with some sort of uh, what they call valorization, uh, which means exploitation, valorization, exploitation. Which means that okay, you have done this wonderful research. How does that impact the market now? Um, you know, how does that have an impact in the real world? And I mean, we we had actually some um, some exploitation strategies already. Um, we had SAP was one of the partners. They were you know exploiting some of the results. Uh, the voting systems were being deployed. And for the messaging uh, Mixnet that we had built, we had this idea, okay, what, what uh, if we, you know, if we try to hook this up with some sort of blockchain system in order to make it into an infrastructure for, applica- for applications that can use it to anonymize their communications? And initially, this was just some idea that was put on the table. But then we got really, really encouraging feedback from the reviewers in the European Commission and they said we think this is a great idea. You should definitely go for it. And mm. that's uh, how Harry, who's the CEO of uh, NIM, and was one of the researchers working on this, started working on it. And then some others from the project have also joined this effort. So it actually came out of a European research project. Cool. What was that called? What was the
0: research project? The original research project called it was called Panoramic's. Okay. Panoramics, and you were looking at this mixed net phenomenon. When like at what point does it start like you you mentioned you kind of like were thinking of putting it together with a blockchain but is is Nim a protocol block like is it a blo- cryptocurrency or is it a protocol that lives on top of blockchains like how does that interact? It's it's complicated. <laughs> I'll try I'll try to summarize it. So,
1: I mean, what we're trying to build is an infrastructure for privacy, as I said, right? And um, there are two main features we are trying to, provoke, to provide to applications that use this infrastructure. One of them is metadata protection at the network layer. And for that, we use a mixnet that basically delinks input messages from output messages such that it's not possible to know who's communicating with whom. Got it. So that's that's one piece of it and then we complement it with uh, with a system that enables anonymous authorizations. So basically imagine you're going to access a system and you need to maybe pay to access that system, okay? So the problem is that in many uh, unless you use like an anonymous currency, in many uh, payment systems, you will, have, you will de-anonymize yourself even you, if you're anonymous at the network layer, right? Mm. So we wanted to integrate it together. Now, why not use something like Zcash? Because Zcash uh, is really geared towards monetary transactions, okay. right? Uh, so you can, you, know, you can transact money from one account to the other and you can do it in a very private way. Now, because we are framing it more as a right to use payment might only be one of the kind of uh, things you have to present in order to access a system uh, just to give you some examples for example if i want to access uh, adult content i might have to prove that i'm also uh, of age that i'm yeah. an adult right okay. or if i want to buy alcohol i might have to prove that i'm an adult or i might need to if i if i am accessing a system that is uh, let's say an anonymous forum for uh, uh, anonymous alcoholics i might need to prove that i'm actually a person that belongs to this group so our our system our voucher system uh, payment is one of the of the kind of um, authorization uh, elements you can show that you paid the right amount and this this voucher is redeemable by the service uh, taking it but you can also modu- it's very modular so you can attach to this voucher Proofs of other identity attributes that might be relevant to make a decision of whether you're given a service or not, or not only whether you're given a service or not, but maybe there are different price categories depending on on mm. some identity attributes. If, if you have a student discounts, I'm a, I'm a student, then I would have to pay the discounted amount Together with a proof of me being a student, Mm. and this kind of flexibility is not possible in Zcash because it's not built for that. It's just built for transactions. Monetary transactions. I
0: think I'm still not clear though. So what I understand right now is like it's a set of rules or like logic for how to have a private communication of some sort, like a transaction or this proving of an age or possibly. Transaction like moving of funds, but what is the thing like? Is it is it a protocol set of rules? Is it a piece of software? Is it a blockchain?
1: It's a complex system that contains many pieces. Okay, it does contain a blockchain. Okay, because the blockchain is the where we keep the ledger to keep count of transactions of which tokens have been converted to credentials and back, and we also use it as a channel to um, to broadcast. Uh, network information that all clients should have, like uh, keys of the relevant mixes that are active, network parameters and configuration. Okay. Uh, so that is the blockchain kind of is the broadcast channel, secure broadcast channel that everybody can access in order to understand who is part of this network and how they communicate with, this, uh, with that part. But basically, I mean, from the perspective of an application, like what can they do with this infrastructure? I mean, basically, uh, you would have... Kind of a, a little plugin or translator, both at the client side and at the server side. And at the client side, that piece of software would be in charge of taking the application packages. Imagine the application is a chat application or is like blockchain, you know, Bitcoin broadcasting transaction application, whatever it is. So it would take care of taking the application messages, converting them to the Mixnet messages and sending them through and at the other side, basically converting them back to the application. So it's basically just a transport layer that is anonymous. Okay. If on top of that, you want to also have payments, then the the client uh, would first have to deposit token in an account, get a credential for that, and then send that credential in those packets to the other side, and the other side would be able to verify that this is a valid credential and accept it, and then later on redeem it and get the money. Okay, this, But these are independent pieces. Like some applications might not charge to their users, yeah. and then they would not be using this uh, payment uh, system. They would just be using the transport layer. Is the,
0: is the blockchain that you have underneath this? Is it a like? Is there a token? Is it like? Yes. I'm just curious how this co- like the company, the project, like there are nodes running this blockchain as well, or is it somewhat like there's a blockchain roughly but it's like proof of i don't know like it, i'm i'm curious here like is this like a a blockchain in the traditional sense that we've been looking at which is like very decentralized or is it more just like there's a blockchain to keep records of the privacy part
1: so uh, we the blockchain we are using tendermint actually at the moment so it's not that we we're not developing our own uh, I see. our own uh, component so we are so using a, a ready proof mint.
0: of stake blockchain
1: well, not really, actually. So it's again, it's complicated. We don't seem to fit into this uh, neat categories so yeah. of uh, proof of work, proof of a stake. We do require uh, what we call uh, operators to stake. Okay. So operators are uh, the validators. The validators are the the nodes that if, that uh, maintain the blockchain. Mm-hmm. So, it, like in like many other projects, so you basically have these nodes kind of signing transactions and blocks and maintaining the the blockchain. So this is one operator. The other operators are more the mixed nets. So these are relays that uh, shuffle traffic, right? So the idea is that operators, to become operators of this network, they will have to put stake. Now, the stake is not like in proof-of-stake systems where you're paid more if you have more stake and you're paid less if you have less stake. We actually pay operators on the basis of the work, OK, they do. So we use stake a little bit as a guarantee, as a deposit. I see. To ensure that they have uh, incentives to behave well, because if they misbehave, if they drop packets, if they are not signing transactions, if they are not performing well, then they will lose the stake. Right. And then the rewards are given on the basis of, um, of work. Hmm. So for validators, they have to be active and sign transactions, and this is visible because the, the signatures that the validators issue are visible to everyone, mm-hmm. so everybody can see if a, if a validator is doing work or not. For the mixes, is more complicated, and we actually have a novel solution to um, to measure uh, whether mixes are dropping packets or not, whether they are um, providing the quality of service that they and the bandwidth that they actually promised. If they do... Then they receive rewards that are proportional to the work they performed. But this is not useless work. This is not just doing hashes um, for no good reason. It's actually the work they are doing is shuffling packets and sending packets that are from users. So they are doing work that is useful to somebody, Hmm. but they will be paid based on that. So the stake is more like, so if you think of carrot and stick.
0: The validation is the stick and then the the act, like the work, the useful work is the carrot. Yeah. Or the payment for useful work is the carrot. Interesting. Yeah. Um, does it make sense now? It does. I mean, we've always, like, on the show, we've always been sort of skeptical of of what is it useful proof of work. Does that not create other problems? Like, have you already explored what the challenges of this type of model are? So the thing is that is that this
1: this work that the the routers are doing is not to maintain the blockchain. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, so it's separate. Yeah, the, the work they are doing is to provide a service. And we want to pay them to, for providing a service for others. I see. Okay. So basically they are doing a job for others that others benefit from. And the economic logic is that those who do work for others get paid and those who benefit from the work pay for it. Got it.
0: Okay, so I, I think I have a bit of a sense of what the Nim blockchain looks like. And I and I have a bit of a sense of these different parts. Now maybe we could explore one of these parts that we haven't really covered that much on the show, which is the Mixnet now we've had we've had a group like called Tornado Cash. They came on their mixer, like a mixer application that lives on top of Ethereum using zero knowledge proofs. Now, I don't think we've actually covered mixed nets properly. And so I think it might be good to understand what is this mixed net that's being now like now I think we understand how it how it's being operated, but like what is it? Okay. So
1: the closest analogy to a mixnet for those who never heard of it is, is Tor. So a mixnet is um, an overlay network. So that means that uh, in between two, no- two two of these nodes are connected through the normal internet. And communications that are routed through the mixnet go uh, a router via multiple hops in this network, right? In the kind of mixnets we use, there are many types of mixnets. Uh, the kind of mixnets that we use is what is called a decryption mixnet in a decryption mixnet, packets are encrypted like onion encryption so basically in layers you first encrypt for the last one and then you encrypt that with the previous with the predecessor and then you encrypt with the predecessor all the way to the first proxy that will receive this message I and see then when you. you send the message each of them peels one layer of encryption okay. and forwards to the next and each of them is able to see the predecessor and the successor but they have no visibility of who was, you know, before or after.
0: So it's like, so each, each, each jump is another kind of encryption.
1: Mm, yeah. Well, you the sender encrypts in decryption mixnets. There, as I say, there are different types so oh, yeah. in decryption mixnets. The sender, uh, if I if I want to send a message to you, and this message is going via three intermediaries. I will perform four encryptions. I see. I will first encrypt with your key, so f- first the recipient, then the last mix, then the middle na- mix, then the first mix, and then I send my package to the first mix. And they decrypt. They decrypt, and then the next find one. find who who is next, send it to the next. They decrypt, they find who is next and send and so on, right?
0: Interesting. So that that that's what you mean by Okay, so you actually do all of the encryptions in the at the start and then yes. send it out and it's decrypted. What's another mixnet model? Then this is the decrypt so, mixnet.
1: Yeah. So the others are called they are called re-encryption mixnets, and uh, in those you basically, I mean, there are again multiple flavors. The simplest flavor is that you have one uh, public key for the full network. Um, so you encrypt your message with this public key, and they use a cryptosystem that has homomorphic properties. Hmm. So basically, the input, the the mix that receives my message and many other messages, will uh, re-randomize the encryption. Instead of performing a decryption, they just re-randomize it. Hmm. Okay? So they re-randomize it such that when others see inputs and outputs, nobody who doesn't have the decryption key is able to see the correspondence. And you actually can do... The nice things about this... this, the uh, re-encryption makes sense, is that you can do proofs of shuffle. So you can show that you didn't add or delete any message, that the outputs is a permutation of the inputs. So you can do this multiple times, and then you need to have some sort of decryption at the end. Uh, and that decryption at the end is typically a threshold decryption. Otherwise, you would have a single point of failure. Now, of course, uh, it's, it's a different system in the sense that it's much more computationally intensive because you have zero-knowledge proofs at every step. And also, if the decryption, uh, if, if that one decryption key becomes compromised, they can de-anonymize everything because the, every mix has just re-randomized. So they can just record the messages that were initially sent and decrypt those, right? I see. Um, but these are used for voting usually because voting is not so latency sensitive. Okay. And it's extremely integrity sensitive. You, can, you want to be sure that all votes are counted, that no vote was removed or added. So this is why they can not afford to wait longer in order to have this shuffle proofs and show that indeed nothing is missing.
0: So this is those are the two types of mixnet that you just described. Now yes. my first my first sort of point was like how does this then compare to something like a mixer? So the mixers it's usually I mean, it's tokens. You send tokens into a mixer. They're shuffled together with other people's tokens, basically, and then they come out the other side. And you're supposed to be able to sort of, in a way, hide that you own those particular tokens. Yeah. You, like, they're sort of in the so, system. the concept,
1: okay? So, first the concept. The concept of a mix is an abstract concept, okay? So, the concept of a mix is, is um, some entity, some server, some entity, Receives a set of messages, equal size. Performs some transformation on these messages, cryptographic transformation. And then outputs, them, outputs those messages in a, in a different order. This is a mix. And this is the same okay. for, for a mix in a mixnet. And for a mixer of bitcoins. And uh, what is different is the level of abstraction. Because the mixer for bitcoins, these messages it is taking are Bitcoin transactions. And in the mixer for traffic packets, the inputs they are taking is IP. The process of transforming the messages, reordering the messages, and outputting the messages in a way that you cannot link input to output, that's the abstract concept is exactly the same. The difference is that the the mixnet will be operating on network packets. I see, okay. So, So it's actually a generic infrastructure because it's agnostic to the content of these packets, to the application that these packets belongs to. it just sees you know a data packet, cryptographically transform it, uh, reorder it with respect to the flow of packets you're getting, and that's it. While the mixer is basically taking this concept and applying it to the application layer for this you know, monetary transactions, and then the unit is no longer a data packet. now it's a Bitcoin transaction. Mm
0: going back to what nim is though so nim like would you would you be able to use nim then to as a mixer if you wanted to like could you take bitcoin and send it in one side of this somehow and have like untraceable tokens come out the other side and i realize there might be some exchanges along the way but like mm-hmm. is is that a use case for it so there are different ways in which you can
1: use it you want to make it work with the bitcoin network you can use it simply as a network layer, and the protection you would be getting in that case uh, is that it is not possible for the people observing your computer to know that you're broadcasting a Bitcoin transaction. You could be doing anything else that is accessible through this mixnet. Let's assume we have a mixnet that can serve many applications, that, that the users you know are doing different things in there. So you would be broadcasting your Bitcoin transaction and nobody would be able to tell that you're you know, broadcasting that transaction. And those receiving the transaction, they are not able to see your IP address and they are not able to figure out who is sending this transaction. So it would help sort of with the peer-to-peer uh, broadcast level uh, of, uh, of transactions to kind of uh, conceal the IP addresses of who is participating and who is sending transaction. This is kind of the simplest level the the more kind of full involvement would be to take bitcoin convert it to token then you would have to convert that token to a voucher
0: by token you mean like the nim token yeah so the you'd nim token take bitcoin convert it to nim token and that
1: that you would have to do in exchange yeah. or outside of the system then you you put the bit, the, the nim token uh, you you exchange it for a voucher uh, yeah and now this voucher you can spend it on anybody you can spend it on yourself as well uh, if you spend it on yourself, then you kind of come at the other side and say, I have a voucher to redeem. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And then that would go to a new account and that would be unlinkable provided that many other people are also making transactions. So uh, in that sense, it functions a little bit like the shielded uh, Zcash transactions in the sense that put converting token to, v- to voucher and back is a little bit the same concept as in Zcash going to shielded and 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 then back Got right? it. like you 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 get into this big pool uh, where many other people have their transactions in and then you 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 don't really know correspondence on inputs to outputs
0: and do you use your knowledge proofs in this mixnet or is it more like like is it more like just adding so many so much noise that you can't really see through it or are you actually using your knowledge proofs
1: so both actually so at the at the mix layer so in the mixnet itself we don't really use zero knowledge proofs at the mix. In the mixnet itself is is basically the protection is through random delays, so adding randomness and through adding dummy traffic that uh, conceals also uh, real traffic patterns. But we do have zero knowledge proofs in the issuance of vouchers and the redemption mm-hmm. of vouchers because uh, when you uh, these vouchers are also anonymous. We want to have. I mean, this is one of the things we are trying to achieve to offer this infrastructure that can uh, provide support privacy, not just at one layer, but multi-layer in a way that unlinkability is achieved, both taking into account metadata and uh, authorization-level information. Interesting. Right? So the zero-knowledge proofs, uh, you have to use them to obtain these vouchers, to show that you have put in the voucher the right amount, uh, and then when you redeem it, to show that the voucher was not spent already... Uh, if you are adding uh, other attributes to vouchers that are specific to applications, you might have to prove that it's the same owner of this attribute and this voucher. So operations with vouchers do have zero-knowledge proofs in them. The kind of traffic part of things is, mm, it has crypto, but it doesn't have cryptography, um, but, but not zero-knowledge proofs.
0: And so would you, so now, like, I actually can see the distinction here between, like, the mixers that I've... That we've kind of had on the show before, and, and a mixnet specifically. It sounds like as a, a mixnet is a there's far more types of things that can be transacted over it. It's not purely for non tracing of token or payment or something. It's much more broad. It's a generic. It's a generic communication infrastructure.
1: And the thing with anonymity is that just as in mixers, the number of coins that are mixed together gives you the anonymity set. The more coins mixed together, the more anonymity you have. This, because it's the same concept, uh, works the same at the network layer. That means that the more users of the mixnet, the more anonymity you have. And it's not only about quantity. I also believe it's about quality. So for example, if all your users, imagine you have millions of users, but all your users are using the same application, then by virtue of observing that these users are uh, connecting to the mixnet, I can infer already that they are users of that application. Now, if you have, let's say, hundreds of applications that are accessible through this mixnet, observing that you are connecting to the mixnet gives me almost no information whatsoever. Mm. You know, because now I don't know which application you're using and within the users that hit those applications, which one you are. So, so it increases quality as well. the diversity increases the quality of anonymity. Mix, mixers for Bitcoin, I, I understand have that problem that uh, a lot of people who use them are, are involved in illegal activities. And then uh, if everybody who is involved in illegal activities is the one swapping these coins, then you know you're just uh, you don't your anonymity set says well i don't know which criminal you are but you know you you must be a criminal because only criminals use this so uh, you know if you in, if you end up in a situation like that then your privacy technology will not be um, yeah would not be very useful so what you want to have is a technology that protects everybody that provides default protection that is very broad and that is uh, used by many many people because that's how you have good Anonymity, both in terms of large anonymity sets and diverse anonymity sets. Mm.
0: So, from here, where I like, I kind of want to go back to that comparison that you had originally made to Tor. Because, would you say that the Nim project's goal is to replace
1: Tor? No, I don't think that's um, that's completely accurate. So, anonymity, anonymous communications, is a very broad design space. Just as you know, cryptographic protocols are a very broad design space. You have protocols for all kinds of things, right? So anonymous communication systems, even though they have the ambition of being um, general purpose, the truth is that um, in order to obtain privacy, you need to take uh, some overheads, or you need to pay some costs in terms of bandwidth, in terms of latency, and so on, right? And different applications have different tolerances for these costs. So Tor is actually designed uh, very much for web browsing. Uh, It's optimized for web browsing. What does that mean? It means that it has to be uh, low latency. It is connection-oriented, so you establish a circuit, and then all the communication goes through the circuit because this is, you know, how browsers use the web. Um, Low latency because people are not willing to wait for minutes to get their page loaded. uh, And low overhead because... The problem with web browsing is that it's the most difficult traffic to to anonymize. It's extremely variable. Uh, anonymity likes, if you want to be anonymous, you have to be somehow hiding the crowd, be mm-hmm. homogeneous in some way. And because web, web pages are so different in the traffic fingerprints, it becomes very hard to just add some cover traffic and anonymize, right? So Tor, with all these constraints, then Tor basically has a system that provides nice anonymity as long as you don't have a global network adversary. And the problem is that if you have a global network adversary and you want to anonymize web traffic, you you're in a very difficult situation. So mixnets, what they do is that they take a different point in the design space, and they say we want to protect against really strong adversaries, and to achieve that, we're willing to tolerate some latency. So it's okay if my message takes a few seconds to get to the other side. It's okay if you know I have to generate additional traffic. Uh, so basically, what I would say is that even though you want to have very general infrastructures, you might be in a situation in in which you have, depending on the class of traffic, you need to use networks with different characteristics. So I don't think we can replace Tor for web browsing. I don't think if we wanted to do web browsing, to be honest, we probably would end up with something like Tor because, you know, this is a good design that has been improved over the last 15 years. Uh, But if you want to have higher protection for something like Bitcoin transactions, messaging, other applications that are not web browsing and that have more latency tolerance, you are able to obtain higher security without sacrificing so much because your application is not so sensitive to that.
0: So, what uh, that was actually, that leads to the next question. It's like, what applications do you see being used for NIM specifically? So, well, financial applications
1: uh, is um, one. Uh, one use case also because the user base of these applications is adventurous and more willing to take, uh, you know, be early adopters for new technologies and also because they have strong privacy requirements. So they might be willing to take uh, some latency or some cost in order to, to achieve privacy. So that's definitely one. We would like to do messaging. Messaging is kind of a classical use case for for our mixnets. When I say messaging, it can be email, it can be instant messaging. Of course, the latency for email, the latency is, is more lax, but for messaging, probably a couple of seconds would be maximum people would be willing to to tolerate. So that's a bit more stringent. Now with contact tracing, we think that solutions for contact tracing for the virus might be strengthened by submitting information through a mixnet such that any anything that can be inferred from the activity or IP address about your uh, positive or negative status cannot be inferred anymore. So mm. to protect that what other applications i mean a lot of financial applications we're talking to the people from blockstream um for lightning network um liquid so these we think that these are projects that have strong privacy requirements high stakes and might be willing to take on a little bit of latency or a little bit of overhead in order to achieve that
0: i want to i want to sort of shift the conversation a little bit towards the more kind of General privacy space, because I have you on this podcast. And given that you've been working around this for 20 years, as you just said, the thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I, I don't think I'm the only person thinking about this, is as we are in this time where all pretty much everyone in the world, in the Western world's in quarantine at the moment, um, and we're all in quarantine because of the coronavirus, something we haven't actually touched on barely at all on the podcast so far. But we're all in this quarantine. There's been sort of signs that like, you know, extreme testing and tracking as they did in South Korea could be a really great way to maintain a low level of this virus, you know, contagion, after we come out of the quarantine. And there's all of these systems being rolled out right now. And I know of a number of like large data companies that are being sourced from all the governments to try to come up with strategies or apps or something, like these tracking mechanisms, to start using this technique for this post-quarantine world. So given that you're on the show, given, given your background, I, what I'd love to hear from you about is like, well, partly like what do you make of it? And and maybe, do you, have you seen, like, is there anything from the past that we could, like, look to in imagining how this could, like, roll out and possibly making it a little bit more privacy conscious? Because, I mean, the big risk here is we roll out, and I think people are pretty aware of this, but you roll out some of these, you know, mechanisms, some of these new things, and they are very, very effective against this virus, but then they also provide information... That really starts to erode potentially like personal freedoms and freedom of speech and freedom of thought and like all of the things that I think people in the privacy space value very highly. And I think we all, I think this, I think over the the duration of this show, we have actually had a chance to speak about quite a lot, like the reason why privacy is important. That's been covered. But yeah, so sorry, that's a long rambling question. (laughs) There is a question in there. It's basically, have you seen anything before that we can look to? Um, and maybe what do you think of today?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the way I think about these things is that information is power. So, sometimes we want to, we want somebody to have power uh, to use this power for a good purpose. And, uh, and some other times we don't want somebody to have power because we are afraid they might use it to our disadvantage, right? So, of course, uh, in a situation like, like this, uh where we all want somebody to have the power to to solve this problem it is very tempting to think okay if we just give up uh, our information then you know some entity will you know be wise take all this information and tell us what to do and uh, and uh, we will all be you know you know better um this i mean this reminded me a little bit to 9 11. So I, I started my PhD in year 2000 and uh, my topic was anonymity and privacy. And when I was one year into my PhD, 9 11 happened. Right? I have to say it was a very difficult time to do a PhD on privacy because.
0: Nobody cared about privacy. It was such an afterthought.
1: Not even there was hostility. Hostility. It was oh, not wow. that they didn't care, there was active hostility you would advocate anonymity systems and mixnets i was actually working on mixnets at the time right i mean it's, it's an old technology um you would advocate mixnets net, uh, and people would be like ah but you know this is for terrorists and uh, you know why do you support terrorists and you know it was really really hard to to make people understand that uh, wanted to to have safety from terrorism doesn't have to mean that we have to turn into a surveillance society, right? Mm. That tr- that's led to a lot of surveillance technology, and that led to then uh, business models that were benefiting from that surveillance information that was available. And now we we come to this, you know, surveillance capitalism. I don't know if you have read the book from uh, Shoshana Zuboff. Well, I, I can give you the the gist of it. Sure. Basically, she says that we have this system in which uh, tech companies are claiming what is basically the human private experience captured as data. They turn this data into predictions of behavior. These predictions of behavior is the product that they sell. They sell this product to advertisers who then try to manipulate our behavior, right? So what she says, I mean, there's this whole thing that oh, if you're not paying for it, you're not the customer, you're the product. Mm-hmm. What she says is you're not even the product. You're the raw material. The product is a, be- is a prediction on your behavior that somebody can act upon in order to make money from it,
0: right? And when we And like that example of the companies, I mean, we've been aware of the companies doing that. What's weird, I guess... I mean with your I want to hear a bit more about the 911 experience because there it was more governments right like there you have this idea of like not not companies mining your data to sell you advertising but rather governments owning a lot of your patterns and predicting potentially predicting things and I think the scariest part of this whole thing is when it starts to bleed into public opinion voting you know how you pick your leaders how you pick what your leaders are going to do. Like, that's yeah. where having this, I mean, it's, I think it's always scary. It's scary when it is in the hands of companies because they're private usually, or they're like, their control board is not voted in. I remember actually finding that very frustrating that you don't vote for the CEOs, you don't vote for the people who get to control your data in that way. But on the government side, it's also really scary because there's <laughs> just a different level of like power. That's a, I think that, that that's a little bit of a,
1: uh, American-European kind of cultural thing, right? Like, I think, I think in the U.S. people are more worried about government while people in Europe are more worried about companies. Well, I'm actually Canadian, so
0: I'm sort of like somewhere in the somewhere middle. but in between. But, um, in between. Yeah.
1: I, to be honest, for me, I don't think it makes so much of a difference, actually. Uh, I think in the end it ha- it comes down to who has power, what are their incentives, are their incentives aligned with yours, what is their agenda, is their agenda, you know, the things they are going, they are going to use your information for, to advance their own agenda. And in some cases, that might be beneficial to you or neutral to you. And in other cases, it would, would be detrimental, right? Uh, mm-hmm. To me, it's more about the loss of agency uh, that is a problem. Uh, it's very difficult, I think, to really uh, point to, like, often with privacy, we have this issue of that is difficult to point to concrete harms. You have to go, like, really to very extreme examples, to make your points. But to me, it's really about a loss of agency and being in this kind of situation in which people know things about you. They are using these things to make decisions about you. You might not even know that this is happening. You might not even know in, in which ways it is impacting you. And to me, it just makes the, our world less democratic and less free uh, across the board. Right. Mm. Thinking about the difference between uh, the, the pandemic and the terrorism is that I, I think it, it was the surveillance drive was possibly even worse, I think, with 9-11 in the sense that there the idea was like, oh, some people are bad and we need to monitor oh, yeah. everyone to find who are the bad ones hiding in the among the people.
0: Right. So, true. And it was really like what's in their mind. Yeah. What's in the person's mind and not so much what's Yeah, are they ill? So it was Did they have a fever? So it was really your suspect by default. And
1: Mm. that created a set of you know attitudes and dynamics that were really horrible. In the pandemic, I think the the citizens are probably viewed a little bit less adversarially, Mm. in the sense that you're trying to protect them and you're trying to protect everybody, but also the, the person that you're monitoring. So it is not quite as adversarial as, ah, you might be the enemy and I, I need to make a, you know, really look at you to see whether you are, you are one of the bad ones so I can throw you in jail. Right. So in that sense, I think it might be uh, less adversarial, meaning that we might have uh, we might we have the opportunity of having solutions that I think don't distrust so much the individuals that kind of count on the individuals to act in ways that are constructive uh, mm-hmm. towards the, you know, the common goal. I have to say, I mean, there is there are some initiatives already on uh, for contact tracing. Of course, I mean, it's a huge problem that we will have to solve in the coming weeks or, or months uh, in order to, you know, get back to a bit more normality than than today. In Europe, there is an initiative. I am not directly involved, but I know I, I am familiar with it. And I know people who are involved. It's called PEPP-PT. So that's like Pan-European uh, Consortium. And I know one of the proposals is called DEPP. P3T. I mean, all these P's and 3's and T's. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a distributed solution. And it's actually a really, really nice solution. It's, uh, it's built uh, by a team of people led by Carmela Troncoso from EPFL. She actually did her PhD with us uh, here in Leuven. And it's a really, really nice solution because it's, it's, what I would call a really excellent example of privacy by design. Uh, in the sense that it shows how, uh, if you want to achieve a functionality by which People are able to warn, to warn others that they might have been exposed without producing data that can be repurposed and abused in other ways. Uh, This is really an excellent solution that achieves that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the sense with privacy technologies, what we try to achieve is can we do what we want to do without risking uh, exposure of data, right? Uh, because of course you can be fully private if you just you know throw your phone away you throw your computer away you have no internet and now you know you don't have that problem anymore but that's not what we want we want to take advantage of new technologies we want to the convenience we want the you know the power of 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 these systems we just don't want to pay the price of now in order to achieve, to get that i have to now be completely transparent invisible to to other parties that might use that information for things that are not good for me, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And that's why, I mean, this is one of the things that I that I find so exciting about the technologies that we explore on this show, which is this idea that you, like, with a zero-knowledge proof system where you can reveal some information without revealing all information. Or this, just I've, I've always liked this term, you know, selective disclosure and sort of choice of what you disclose. Obviously, these are amazing things to aspire to. I really I actually, going back to what you just said, this comparison and the, the fact that this time around it seems less adversarial, I really like that thinking, but I wonder, like, do you still worry I mean, for the short term, I completely agree that I think that is the model. But are you also worried about some and we've, I've heard this from like other people in the privacy space. are you worried that, this, that there will be kind of a rollback on privacy that is never returned to us?
1: Well, sure. I mean, of course, there are many parties who just want to do data grabs, right, that that they are looking for opportunities to get access to more data and privacy to them is an obstacle to their business. Right. Um, I think from government, it depends on who you're talking to. I think uh, government is a very big beast. Mm-hmm. And some pieces of it are concerned with uh, civil, civil rights and freedoms, with other pieces of it are concerned with things that might be in conflict with civil rights and freedoms. Right. Um, Sure, I am very concerned that uh, this will be used as an excuse to to in- intensify surveillance and that the climate, the fear and the worry and the concern that people have will kind of uh, swipe uh, out the, the privacy concerns that are also very legitimate, uh, especially if we go for solutions that rely on surveillance in order to in order to, to achieve this function of, uh, you know, controlling the, the spread of the virus. So, and the problem is that, I mean, it's intuitive, right? Like, if you want to have, like, as an individual, if you want to make decisions, what you need is data. You need information mm-hmm. to make this decision. You need facts. You need to know what you're doing. The, the counterintuitive thing about privacy technology is that sometimes you're able to, to achieve or to make the good decision without actually getting to see the data this is you know zero knowledge is is one of the of the wonderful you know very counterintuitive technologies that does this so of course the general public will make if, if if what is presented to the general public is either you give your data or you will have to be in quarantine for the rest of the year and the the country will collapse then people will say yeah sure well yeah. you know this is something we we have this is a price we have to pay this is is is, is too much otherwise you know but I think what where privacy technologies research comes into play is saying, okay, how can we achieve what we want without turning this into a surveillance nightmare,
0: right? Yeah, it's basically the compromise there, where it's like you you do provide the data you need to, and you still.
1: I would say it's not a compromise. to keep
0: some to yourself? I would say oh, it's, really? it's
1: having the cake and eating it, right? <laughs> like in a compromise, <laughs> right. you kind of have to give something up. What Fair we enough. want, ideally, I mean, sometimes you have to give something up, but ideally what we want is to not have to give anything up of the, of our objective. Uh, I'd also not give anything up, up uh, about our privacy, which might be a side concern when you're, you know, focusing on the on the application objective, mm. in this case, the contagion.
0: How, how do you understand these decision making, the decision making process going on in governments? Or like when we talk about this, and let's use like maybe today's mm. case as an example. So there's there's governments who are interfacing with sort of data mining companies and they're coming up with some solutions they have almost like a team of consultants who are thinking about and working on all of these solutions that they could potentially roll out through the government channels how does like how does a privacy advocate or somebody working on the privacy side of things like at what point do you enter into that conversation yeah like, so i have
1: actually been Not, not recently, but, you know, throughout the last uh, years, occasionally in, in contact with policymakers. I think as an academic, this is part of the job. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure all academics do it, uh, but I think it's part of the, of your job is to kind of disseminate what is important about the science that you do to policymakers that might make decisions that are relevant to, to the science or that this science is relevant to the decisions that they are making, right? I am not so deeply involved into policy making to know which structures uh, are used uh, to uh, consul- consult with experts. But I do know that uh, often there will be people that are kind of on the lookout of who are the experts on this topic and who should we invite. And then often they will have a workshop or a roundtable and then they have people who are uh, working on these topics to kind of uh, enlighten them about you know what? What the science says. Now, I am not sure to what extent this is very structured. Uh, I am not enough of an insider to to know these procedures from the inside. But yeah, there there is expertise uh, being sought sometimes. Now, the problem is that uh, even if that is happening, I have the impression that industry lobbyists have a lot more access to policymakers than academics do. Right? Mm. I mean. I have to teach. I have to publish papers. I have to review papers. I have to do a lot of things. I don't spend my day talking to policymakers about why they should care about privacy and you know what solutions they can use. That's not my full time job. It's something I do occasionally. Now, uh, industry lobbyists. These are very smart people. They uh, are paid a lot of money to full time be on the job of you know convincing, persuading policymakers that, you know, their ideas are the ones that should be taken up, right? So I do have an, the impression that is when you have, when when the path ahead, um, there is a divergence between what maybe people from academia that work on privacy would suggest and people from industry, what people from industry would suggest. I think we have... Uh, less weight in the sense that we don't have the ear of the policymakers in the way that lobbyists uh, might, right?
0: Hmm. So unless you could find a way to have lobbyists for privacy, <laughs> like unless somehow the the privacy side of things was super well represented, also in that category. But
1: you know, the problem is that the the, the business model in the internet is surveillance capitalism.
0: Yeah, it's true.
1: So I mean, all the big tech companies. I would say they're all making money. I mean, Apple is making money of sell, selling hardware, mostly. But I would say the others are basically making money primarily off the data.
0: But then I wonder, I mean, it, ben, in that in that scenario that you just described, I almost feel like we should identify those groups that are not benefiting from the surveillance capitalism online. And argue that by supporting these privacy concepts in their lobbying efforts, like with big big bucks, they actually have competitive advantage. Absolutely, I mean the thing that might be a way to think about. it. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean uh, that that's absolutely necessary. The thing is that if you look at big tech. Uh, and medium tech, <laughs> it's all based on surveillance capitalism. They all need more data, right? So privacy is traditionally uh, something that has been more the, 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 the terrain of academia and civil society. Yeah. If you look at Tor, Tor is a non-for-profit, right? And only now. And if
0: you look at GDPR and like where that came from, I mean, although I think there was some corporate but backing but i believe as as far as i've understood that was more from like a civil government level um in order to actually and and maybe a little bit a european to push off american yeah. sort of interests a little bit yeah
1: yeah. but i mean in a in a way i mean it's a, it's a, in, in in to some extent it's an ideological battle i i find and and i think academics and researchers and activists they need to be present and they need to keep pushing because this is the only way that this conversation is, will shift, right?
0: Mm. Interesting.
1: But yeah, I mean, I have to say that, I mean, privacy companies, uh, we have, a, I mean, NIM Technologies is a privacy company, and uh, I would argue that uh, Zcash and, you know, other projects are also kind of fitting into this, uh, this category of privacy companies. This is something extremely new. Like, privacy, I, I've been working on privacy for 20 years. It's extremely difficult to make money off privacy, Uh, it has been extremely difficult until now. I I find that actually blockchain projects and the blockchain world has opened new opportunities, uh, I think, for new opportunities for funding and new opportunities for business models
0: Mm.
1: um, that were not there before. So I'm hoping that we will see a new generation of, of industry, of companies, actually building software and products that are, have high levels of privacy preservation. Because otherwise, I mean, academics, I'm sorry, I mean, PhD students, they don't make uh, industry quality software, right? I mean, they make research prototypes. They can be very nice, very interesting, but that don't get to the masses. If you want to get to the masses, you need industrial production. And you need money to be there in industrial production for that industrial production to be sustainable. And that has not happened until now. And now let's see, I mean, I think now we have an opportunity and we, we have to see if these companies actually are able to, well, to make the case and to, to have a sustainable business model and to show that you can also be privacy-friendly and still viable.
0: Like, as you talk about these privacy companies, for some reason the, the concept of VPN sort of pops into my mind. But
1: VPNs are not a privacy technology, in my opinion. Because, okay, I mean, they do provide privacy with respect to your local network adversary and with respect to the recipient. But the problem is that they are tr- trusted party. They're a central point of trust. And I would think that if you have that a privacy technology to be worth the name privacy technology, it cannot be a a single point of failure. You know, it cannot be that there is this one entity that knows everything you're doing and can fully surveil you. So I, I, in that sense, I don't think VPNs uh, count as a privacy technology because even though they protect you against uh, towards third parties, you're completely vulnerable towards them. This is not the case in Tor, for example, right? In Tor, like each of the nodes in, 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 that in your path knows either intermediary and successor, but nobody knows the full path. While the VPN knows the full path because the full path is you, them, and the end destination, <laughs> right? There's no more yeah. to that. So, so you need to have multiple, it's, it's like distribution. It's like when, in this, you, when you don't want to have centralized systems, you want to have distribution. A, a VPN is a centralized system in, in, a, in a way. And, and by distribution means that you have multiple proxies and then each proxy has a piece of information, but all of them have to collaborate together to put together all these information pieces, right? So it's really the same concept as in a blockchain that you have all these different entities collaborating such as that no one of them being malicious can violate the security properties.
0: That's, that's actually, that's an interesting point, that idea that, like, privacy technology alone, like, it, it isn't truly privacy technology unless it has some element of decentralization because, or, it, it, or maybe you could say, like, it would be an insecure privacy. Uh,
1: so decentralization is a typical way to achieve a distribution of trust. You can also have centralized systems that uh, are such that the central system is not able to learn anything. For example, uh-huh. um, yeah, you, you could have a system in which everything is done with homomorphic encryption, for example. So in that case, even if it's not decentralized, I mean, they can, of course, cut the availability or they can stop responding or, you know, things like that, but they will not be able to break the confidentiality of the information, even if it's centralized. But, but Got in it. a communication system, um, uh, yeah, the the asset that you cannot encrypt the asset because the assets that you're encrypting is the metadata, is who is the activity, is is the signaling, right? So you need to have multiple proxies in order to achieve that. It's not operations on the encrypted data alone.
0: What what do you think then? Like now that we've I mean we've covered a lot of really good ground here. We talked about NIM, we talked about like just sort of privacy generally. What do you what are you looking at? Kind of going forward. I know we're all in this like funny state where we like planning for the next two months is like impossible because we have no idea what's going to happen. But what where are you at with the privacy trajectory, and what do you think we can kind of like look forward to?
1: I mean, I'm uh, a lot of my research now is uh, on anonymous communication systems. I have actually done. I mean, that was my PhD, <laughs> and now I'm back to the topic of my PhD. In between, I did for many years. I looked into many other. Types of uh, location privacy, social networks, you know, all kinds of search, all kinds of applications. But now I'm back to to anonymity, anonymous communications. I mean, uh, for NIM, I mean, there's plenty of uh, open problems that we are still uh, figuring out because uh, it's a new design. So we are building on uh, on the one hand, well-established literature and techniques, but on the other hand. Of course, because it's a new environment and uh, we want to offer additional features. So I, I, I mentioned that mixes, mix nodes in our network are rewarded for their work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They're rewarded for, for forwarding this traffic and doing it correctly and not dropping packets. So uh, we are actually working out. I mean, we have the concept, but we have to fully develop the, the full scheme of, uh, of how we, we achieve that, Right. And the way we do that is that we have some sort of secret shoppers that use the system, and then those messages then at the end are revealed. These are messages that are only used for for measurement. So nobody can see that they look like normal messages, but then periodically these they become revealed so if somebody dropped uh, messages you would be able to see who dropped them and if somebody is dropping messages consistently then they are not providing a good quality of service therefore you don't want them in your network you want them to you know take their stake and kick them out because mm. they are not uh, I mean they are basically driving your user base away by not providing a good service right
0: would there be a would there be a slashing event if that happened? Is the stick yeah, being used yeah. there? So so if okay.
1: uh, I mean, of course, uh, you have some tolerances, right? Like it's not like because they dropped one packet ever, uh, they they get punished. But if they are not performing uh, according to the the level that they have to achieve, mm-hmm. yes, they will be slashed. Because I mean, uh, the thing with mixnets is that if you have low quality mixes. Then packets are lost, then, I mean, it would be very difficult to actually have a functioning system that people can use and that is reliable, that we are able to attract services and offer something Mm -hmm. that really works, right? We need to be able to have reliability on these underlying servers. So the way to achieve it is to say, well, you know, if you provide reliability, you will make money. This will be your, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like your job is that you run this mix. Your service. You you Mm -hmm. run this mix. You have to buy the hardware. You have to do the work of configuring and maintaining. But then you have a salary. You have an income for doing this kind of work. But if you are not meeting your promises, then, you know, you will lose money. So that we don't want people to join and then not provide the service because for us, that would be, um, for us and for, for the
0: users of the system, that would be very problematic. So that's some of the work you're doing on the NIM side. But what about um, generally? Like, what do you see coming up? Coming up generally?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, in the field of uh, of of, uh, privacy technologies, I do think that we will see now uh, a lot of proposals for contact tracing, for yeah, location. Not only, I mean, contact tracing is the the ones I'm more familiar with. Other countries are looking into quarantine violations. So I guess many people will be now coming up with protocols and solutions to how to achieve this in a privacy preserving manner. Um that's definitely I mean there is this DP3T D- uh, scheme that is actually very interesting. Mm-hmm. And
0: I'm I'm Are you excited about it? Like do you actually do you feel more hopeful right now? Than maybe like post 9-11? Well, post
1: 9-11, it was just like, you know, you just go with your shields, you know, and you're just just in defensive mode all the time. You're just going to be called a friend of the terrorists or something. So you you have to really (laughs) have all the arguments of why this is not the case, right? Uh, things have uh, changed a lot since Snowden, I have to say, and, uh, you know, the the whole horrors of Facebook. And now you can talk about privacy, everybody will agree with you and not disagree. So that, that I mean, I don't know. I mean, these things uh, it's politics, right, in the end. So I think it will have to be fault to the people who are pushing for these proposals to be to get the support that they need and to. To be able to find the good arguments and to be able to persuade those who make the decisions to be able to win that argument, that is uh, nothing is, is to be taken for granted. I think, I mean, there are good technologies on the table. That's a step one. If you don't have even an alter- a, a technological solution saying, oh, we should not do contact tracing because it's privacy invasive and we should just be in the quarantine until 2030, that's not going to be, uh, you know, that's not going to be an argument that people will buy. So I think the first step is to put good technologies on the table that do the job without jeopardizing privacy and then to do the work of the politics work of, you know, talking to the people who make decisions, getting to decision makers, speaking about it, persuading people why this is important, why this is the better solution. Pushing and that's through. I mean, of course, for the people who propose it, but also I think the rest of us as a community, we need to... We need to push in that direction if we want to make a difference because the others who have privacy invasive solutions, often they have more resources than we do for,
0: for doing this PR. So I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and chatting with me about, you know, NIM technologies and sort of a lot of your work in privacy technology over the years and how you kind of see, you know, what's, what's happening now through that lens. So thank you so much for, for sharing your insights. Thank you very much for having me. It was my pleasure. Yeah. And to our listeners, thanks for listening.